What a beautiful day, huh? Spring, free bird. I just uh, want to echo what Allison said. This is like the weirdest thing, you know? I never thought 20 years ago, I wasn't even sure God existed. <laughs> and now we're on uh, Easter Sunday. I'm standing in front of the uh, cars in a parking lot you know, on Easter Sunday. It's just, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful that we can be together, even if it's like this, you know. Um, praise God. And, uh, yeah. I want to start with um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Is here, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, as uh, you read through the gospel narratives, the gospels are stories, right? And every story has its villains. And you see these characters emerge in the gospel stories. They're villains insofar as they they oppose Jesus and they oppose his message. And one of the most hostile groups, interesting enough, were the Sadducees. In fact, you might even be able to make an argument that this group called the Sadducees were the most hostile towards Jesus because even the Pharisees would actually invite Jesus to dinner once in a while. They would at least tolerate his company, but when you read the, the Gospels, the Sadducees just didn't want anything to do with them. Just very openly hostile towards them. They were rich, aristocrats, they were based there in Jerusalem, right? They had tons of money, power, religious authority. But usually when we think about the villains, we do what who comes to mind first? We think of the Pharisees first, right? And certainly the Pharisees, they blew it big time. <laughs> when you read uh, Matthew chapter 23, for example, if you have your Bibles with you, you can take a look in there, I guess, if you want to, or you've got your phones, right? 21st century. Matthew chapter 23, some of the harshest, most biting words Jesus ever spoke, right? I mean, we're talking about the Lord of life and love here. Some of his harshest words he spoke in that chapter, and they're directed towards the Pharisees, right? So it's it's obvious that they that they had blown it. But um, where did they go wrong? You know, you ask a hundred Christians that question: Where did the Pharisees go wrong? And probably ninety-nine point nine of them. We'll say, well, the Pharisees went wrong because they were trying to purchase their salvation with good works, or they were trying to purchase eternal life by observing Mosaic law. And that answer would be very helpful if the question I had asked was, how do the Pharisees think salvation works? But you notice that's not exactly what I asked. And this, this is very important, this distinction I'm making. I think we need to hone in on this. I'm not just trying to split straws this morning. All right? So stay with me. Stay with me. 
Of course, the Pharisees did not believe what we believe. We believe, or I hope you believe, if you don't, that eternal life is a free gift of God. Amen? Like, isn't, I mean, we're so privileged, by the way, to have that knowledge. If you, if you think about it, to have the knowledge that our salvation is not based upon our uh, merit. It's based upon our need. And God knew what he needed, and he extended us, out of his love and mercy, he extended towards us the gift, as Paul, as Paul says in the book of Romans, the free gift of eternal life. And the Pharisees, they didn't know that. But guess what? I'll bet you anything that Peter, James, and John, before they knew Jesus, before they knew Jesus, I'll bet you they didn't know that either. I'll bet you they didn't. I mean, you think about what your view of salvation would be if all you had to go on was the Old Testament. So you've got no New Testament, you've got no Book of Romans, Apostle Paul, none of that. What do you think your view of salvation would be? Do you think it would be the same as it is now? Uh, speaking for myself, I don't think it would be. And like I said, if we had the chance to interview Peter, James, and John before they knew Jesus... I'll wager that their view of salvation was a lot closer to the Pharisees than ours. Because a lot of first century Jews believed that. They believed if they were going to be rescued from Roman occupation, if they were going to be counted worthy of the resurrection of the dead, they had to upkeep their end of the Mosaic Covenant. And so the Pharisees, yeah, their theology was incomplete, but so uh, was Peter's theology, so was James' theology. And yet, and here's the, here's the thing that I want us to, to think about. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, the rest of the apostles, though their theology was imperfect, when Jesus said, come and follow me, they responded. Do you get that? They responded and said yes, even though their theology was not as good as ours is right now. Or as I hope ours is. So again, when I ask the question, where did the Pharisees go wrong? And we just immediately respond with this. It's just sort of a knee-jerk reaction for evangelicals. Well, they were trying to purchase eternal life by observing the law. You know, you're making an assumption that the Pharisees were seeking eternal life in the first place. And I don't think they were. I don't really think they cared all that much about eternal life, to be perfectly honest. But that might sound incredible to some of you. You might think, well, who doesn't want, who doesn't want eternal life, right? Or you could phrase the question slightly, in a slightly different way. You could say, who, uh, who doesn't want to not go to hell? I don't think, I, I don't know if I said it right. I put a lot of negatives in that sentence. You know, no one wants to go to hell, right? But that doesn't mean, just because we want eternal life, doesn't mean that we're seeking it. It really doesn't. I think Thomas Traherne once wrote in his uh, book, Centuries of Meditations, he said, everybody praises happiness and yet they despise it. And what did he mean by that? What did he mean when he said everybody praises happiness and yet all men despise it? He means that just because you think you want happiness, that doesn't mean you're acting in a way that's going to give you happiness. That's what he was saying. And I'll, I'll tell you another story here along these lines about how much our culture 
even our Christian culture values eternal life. All right? Um, I remember when I was in my mid-20s, late-20s, somebody drew my attention to this verse in John's Gospel. I want to read it for you. It's John chapter 17, verse 3. Many of you know this passage. It reads like this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And someone showed that to me and basically explained, look, eternal life is not being a cool place. Like, we think of eternal life as, you know, being in heaven, right? And being in this cool place where there's no suffering and everybody's happy. But what Jesus is saying here is eternal life is actually about being with the right person. It's about being connected to God, right? In a personal relationship. And when he says knowing God, he's not talking about information, right? He's talking about knowledge, something that's sunk into our hearts. It's in our head, it's in our memory, and it's also in our hearts. And we want to be connected with God. And he says, by knowing God, you are experiencing eternal life. Now that has huge implications, right? If we believe those words, if we believe those words, what does that mean? That means we can experience eternal life when... Right now, the free gift that the Apostle Paul talked about, we can have a foretaste of that gift right now. And that was, like I said, it was a game changer for me. And I was really excited. I thought, well, this is, this is gold. In Bible at Emmanuel Christian School, and my, my wife and I, before the school year started, we'd taken these post boards and in you know, big black letters we wrote out this verse. John chapter 17, verse 3, and I, I posted it in front of my classroom, you know. And uh, I'm teaching high school students, and they come into class for Bible. And there are some disadvantages to going to a Christian school and have a Bible class. Like, I recognize this, because Bible just becomes another class, you know. It's like, yeah, I've got history, I've got math, and I've got Bible, you know, so... Um, they're not always so plus to be in Bible class, and that's understandable, right? But I thought, well, surely this is going to pique their interest, though. Like, they're going to think that this is worth knowing. And I teach this lesson, and it's like crickets, you know? They just have the same sort of glazed <laughs> look on their faces, like, yeah, okay, we got it. And I thought, all right, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm just misreading them. You know, maybe I'm misjudging their reaction here. So at the end of the week, I give a quiz. And mind you, that verse is still sitting over my head. Sitting, sorry, it's, it's up over my head. For everybody to see, I didn't take it down. And I asked them the question, how did Jesus define eternal life? The words are right above my head in big black letters. Not one of them got it right. Not one of them. And that's scary, because it means that the devil is doing his work well, church. Because I'll tell you what, had, at the beginning of that week, had I said, I can earn a million dollars, no joke. You can legally earn one by the end of the week if you just do what I say. I guarantee you, they'd have been on the edge of their seats, right? There wouldn't be, hey, is this going to be on test? You know? What would be the end of that? They'd have been had a pen in hand. They'd have been ready. Okay, tell me. Tell me what I need to do. Turn a million dollars. 
Guess what? I was talking about something that's worth a lot more than a million dollars, church. But not to this culture. What are we doing? I want to I tell you where I believe the Pharisees went wrong. And I want to read a parable in the gospel according to Luke. This is chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, that's an extraordinary passage, what this guy is doing. This Pharisee, now get this, get the irony of this picture, all right? The Pharisee is going to the temple. He's not going to worship God. Who's going to worship? He goes to the temple to worship himself, to exalt himself. Look at his prayer. God, I thank you that I am awesome. Thank you, Lord. I want to tell you right now, I believe for everyone here, your life right now is dominated by one of three loves. There's one of three loves that is, sits at the top for everybody in this world. Love of self, love of the world, or love of God. Now to say that we have a dominant love isn't to say that we, we don't have secondary loves and subordinate loves, right? But one of those loves is dominating your life right now. I guarantee it. And for the Pharisees, it was love of self. And it's very common. It's a complicated thing, love of self, because it can take different forms, okay? Sometimes it's just what you might call narcissistic. You feel like that in order to be valuable, alright, in order for your life to matter, you've got to be better than other people. In some way, shape, or fashion, you know, you've got to be the smartest person in the room, the prettiest person, the most talented person, the most educated person, or if you're a Pharisee, the holiest person, right? And if you can't be the smartest, or the prettiest, or the holiest, you've got to be the second smartest, the second prettiest, the second holiest. And people think, well, that's what makes me matter, that's what makes me valuable, is being elevated above common, boring people. But sometimes self-love can take a totally different manifestation. Sometimes it manifests itself as insecurity and neediness. Where we're constantly worrying about what other people think of us, right? And we're not, we're not so much looking to be worshipped as we are to just be liked. We want to be liked. We want people to like us, be attached to us.
But at the root of that is the same false love. It's the same love of self. And it makes people miserable. I mean, I don't know. I know some people that are plagued by this. They're constantly thinking about and worrying about what other people are thinking of them because they think that's where they get their value from, right? What will make me valuable is if other people like me and have a good opinion of me. And guess what, church? That's not what makes you valuable. You know, I've got a... I'm probably going to cry this morning. I've got a 10 month... Yeah, I just like Bill. He taught me. He wrote the book. I've got a 10-month-old boy in that van right over there. And um, I, I, just, I found out that we're going to have a lot of babies uh, coming into the church uh, around summertime, around fall. Praise the Lord, right? A lot, a lot of new life is coming into our church. And I'll tell you that a 10-month-old boy is a miracle worker. You know, what? when we talk about parenting, we often focus on the negative stuff, don't we? Because it's hard, okay? And those of you who are about to be parents, parenting is hard. It's tough. But we don't talk about the other side of the very often. I'll tell you what, I can be having the worst day of my life. And I, I all I have to do is look at him. And his, and his goofy little smile with his two little teeth sticking up out of his gums. And, and it just, all my frustration disappears. All my sadness disappears. Now, why, why is he so valuable to me? Let's take a look at his accomplishments, all right? Um, has he earned a doctorate? No. Does he have a high school diploma? No. Can he wipe his own butt? No. So, so why, why is he so valuable to me? What gives? It's he's valuable because he's my child, period. End of story. You are valuable because you are a child of living God. Period. And now we believe that. You are valuable simply because you were created in the image of a God who loves you immeasurably. You will be haunted by self-love for your entire life. Love of self until you believe that fact. And it's so hard to believe. And the devil does not want us to believe it. But your value is fixed at your birth. You are no more valuable today than the day you were born. And there's nothing you can do to change that value. Nothing. We've got to believe that, church. We've got to regain that truth. Or we'll be seduced by love of self. We'll be seduced by narcissism. By the borderline type behaviors. Where we're obsessed with what other people are thinking of us. Comparing ourselves to other people. Useless. Like what Thomas Burton has to say about that. Comparing yourself to other people is useless. Does you no good. Whether you think they're better than you or worse than you, you're still putting the spotlight on yourself. That's what the Pharisees were doing, and they blew it. They missed the boat. It wasn't just a matter of their bad theology. It was a heart problem. Like I said, there, there are other loves that dominate this world, and love of the world can also dominate you. You know, what, what do I mean by love of the world? I, in a way, it's sort of easier to define it negatively. You can think about it as uh, when we don't think about what happens to us after death. When we don't really think much about faith or hope, 
We just think about, you know, this world and I want to be, you know, it can take different forms too, right? Some people, they want thrills, some people want pleasure, some people want comfort. But the same basic type of things, right? I want to be entertained, I want to be comfortable, I want to be well-fed. And that's understandable, church. We're, I mean, Starbucks is right down there, right? <laughs> uh, that's understandable. And you know what? There's these uh, people that thought... Um, they could measure happiness. They came up with this test to measure the happiness of countries, all right? And here's what they were measuring. They said, okay, well, do you have access to health care, right? Okay. Do you have access to education? Yeah, a good, a good education, right? Do, do you have um, a job? Do you have job security? Do you have job mobility? And they look at the countries where these things are very prevalent, you know, and do you have comfort and, and luxury in your life to some extent, right? And the countries that come to the top of the list uh, routinely are like Denmark and Finland. Or so I'm told. I mean, they're at the top of that chart. Here's something that's interesting, though. You do a Google search, and you change the wording of the search just slightly to what are the friendliest countries in the world? And you know what's interesting? Denmark and Finland aren't on the list. Now that should raise red flags, church. What are they measuring? Because I would think, I mean, doesn't everybody understand that friendly people are, by and large, more happy than unfriendly people? I mean, that's a pretty safe assumption, right? Yeah, they're not measuring happiness. They're measuring comfort. And materialistic people equate the two, and they are not the same. Think about the Apostle Paul sitting in a Roman prison cell, writing to a church in Philippi. Does he have access to health care? No. Does he have job mobility? No. Can he get up and go out for a walk if he wants to? No. And yet, he said, while he's writing this letter, he said, I have learned the secret of contentment, that I can be content in here, writing a letter to a church, I can be with kings and sitting in palaces. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Church, that's what a happy person looks like. It's not about what your life looks like on the outside. It's about what you've got on the inside. And interestingly enough, too, I've also heard this statistic that these countries that are so happy, they also consume massive amounts of antidepressants. Go figure. And you know what the excuse is? The excuse is, well, that's all part of being happy. All you need is your health care, your job, and your antidepressants, and you're good to go. What a life! And then we look at Jesus. Jesus didn't have any of those things, church. Jesus had less than even the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul, he was formally educated. He had a, what would amount to a stellar education. Jesus didn't even have that. He's born in this backwater, in this outpost of the Roman Empire, with nothing, nothing except unbending devotion to the will of his father. Here is the man who showed us what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he showed us that, you know what? Fill yourself up with that love. You're not free from suffering. 
he held on to that even when his own people rejected him. I mean, think of the irony of that. God's chosen people rejecting God's chosen one. His own people rejected him. His own people condemned him. His own people mocked on him and spit on him and beat him and handed him over to the Romans to be tortured to death. And you say, well, whatever he's holding on to, it's got to be with something, right? Whatever he's holding on to, it's got to be something valuable, and it is. It is. You see these three loves, love of self, love of the world, love of God, they all of them lead to death. Not the same kind of death, but they all lead to death. But here's the kicker. Only one of these loves knows the way out of the grave. Only one leads to rebirth. And last week, um, we were li listening to uh, Whitney Harris's testimony, which is uh, it's a beautiful story, amen? I mean, uh, just to see, not, not only the powerful way God was working in her life, but in all these other people, right, that would minister to him, to see how God was moving through all that. And I was, I was watching it and thinking about it afterwards. I mean, you can't help it. It's just such a gripping story, but there's this one thing about it that, that I hadn't thought of before. I was thinking about it the next day and how she was talking about when she was at her worst, you know, and she was in the grip of heroin addiction. Um, you know, she was like sleeping in her car or sleeping out on the street, you know. And, and she, she even said, it's because when, when you're that gone, like all you care about is getting high. I mean, that's all that matters. And it's just, it's just mind-blowing to see, like, the sacrifices that drug addicts are willing to make to support their habit. And I, uh, I thought, you know what? Or rather, God put the idea into my head. What would it look like if we were addicted to God? You know, church, we've got to start... Um, paying attention to the sign of the times. Look at what we're doing right now. In the midst of a global pandemic. L look at the lengths we're willing to go to to protect our own health. Right? We'll shut our economy down. We'll do drive-in church. We'll wear masks out in public. We get all these measures we'll do. Take to take care of our physical health. What are we willing to do to take care of our soul? What are we willing to do to take care of our spirit? Where is the heart hunger for God? Are we just waiting for this to, to get over so we can get back to normal? Normal is what got us into this mess. Where is, where is the heart hunger for Him who loves us so much, who values us so much? You know, there was a church in Laodicea a couple thousand years ago. And it's very important that we realize when you read those letters at the beginning of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, these letters are written to churches, okay? They're written to Christians. They're not written to unbelievers. In other words, these are people who believe that Jesus died for their sins. They're people who believe that he rose from the dead, 
Okay? He's talking to a church. But this church had been ravaged by love of the world. It was being destroyed by love of the world. And Jesus told them this. He said, you guys are being destroyed by this. And what was the solution? All you have to do is open the door. Jesus cleared every single obstacle that stands between us and God. Jesus did, not us. Jesus got rid of every obstacle that stands between you and eternal life. And what he said to that church, he says to the church in America today, I stand at the door and knock. Are we willing? We're willing to do so much in the face of the coronavirus. Are we willing to open that door and say, yes, Lord, you're coming in and not just for one day a week. For every day, every minute, every hour for the rest of my life. You come in and you take possession of all that I am. Yes, Lord, I say yes to the free gift of your presence. Because wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the love of God. Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 4. Worship team, you can start coming up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray that your kingdom come. We pray that your will be done. As in heaven, so on the earth. Give us daily our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, Lord. But deliver us from the evil one, from the world, and from the devil. And pour the blood of your new covenant into our hearts and into our minds, God. And save us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.